Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And it's so important that we're here doing just this because public education is one of the foundations of our liberal democracy, which we'll be talking about later uh, with a very interesting article by John Hinson on Trump and the fascist prospect. If you stick with us, uh, public education is just so important as we go into a period of our liberal democracies being threatened from so many sources. But we have a website at www.adogs.info and this week we have a press release, 719. We're going over to America for this and I have to thank John Foster from Up the Gippsland for giving us this material because what's happening in America is echoed in Australia not too long afterwards these days. In fact, it's getting shorter and shorter, I think. So this is the heading. Betty DeVos and her Democratic supporters of charter schools, because there are Democratic supporters of charter schools in the United States, they draw fire in Georgia, USA. And I have a very interesting quote for you. Progressives all share a core value that all students need to be successful and when they aren't, we need to provide more opportunities. What progressives have lost sight of by just looking at individual children and often individual parents is the other core value of public education, which is the collective good. Progressives are going to have to wrestle with that and I can see signs they are. And that is a very interesting quote from the um, NEA Vice President Becky Pringle from the United States. She is uh, the Education uh, Vice President over there. Uh, Now, Jeff Bryant has got a very interesting website and he's also uh, an interviewer in this press release. And uh, he discovered, and he reports on his website that there have been protests held by public education supporters against one Stacey Evans. Well, who's Stacey Evans? She is a Democratic candidate for Georgia who supports DeVos's charter schools and voucher systems. And as a result of these protests, Jeff Bryant interviewed the National Education Association Vice President Betty Pringle. And dogs are in this press release reproducing this very interesting material for the information of our supporters. So this is what Jeff Bryant had to say as an introduction. The Net Roots Nation is arguably the most important annual event in the progressive community. And it's also a barometer of what's on the minds of the democratic wing of the Democratic Party in the United States. At this year's event in Atlanta, the headline-making happening was the Democratic primary candidate for Georgia, Governor Representative Stacey Evans, and what happened to her? She was shouted down 
biked protesters holding signs that were saying, Stacey Evans equals Betty DeVos and school vouchers do not equal progressive. Now, a lot of these protesters circulated leaflets comparing Evans's past votes on education-related bills to positions that DeVos espouses at the moment. And this included her support for a constitutional amendment in 2015 that would allow the state to convert public schools to charter school management and also her support for a parent trigger that would allow petition drives to convert public schools to charters and her support also for a school voucher program. So down there in Georgia... The progressives are not happy and they're prepared to get out into the street and get politically active. After Evans was shouted down, the National Education Association Vice President, Betty Pringle, took the stage and she demanded that progressives stand in the gap for our children when conservatives slash education budgets and attacked the most vulnerable students in public schools. And she received standing ovations. So Jeff Bryant, who has his own website, as I've said, talked with Pringle about the significance of the protests and the possibility of a powerful new education movement emerging from the progressive community. Now, since this is an interview, I'll ask Robert to ask the questions and I'll read Bretty Pringle's answers. Yes, in the words of Jeff Bryant, he said, let's talk about what preceded your speech. Many of the signs the protesters carried addressed school vouchers. Why was that? And Betty Pringle answered, this progressive crowd who are here understands that vouchers are a scheme to suck money out of public education and funnel it to wealthy people like our current education secretary, Betty DeVos. This crowd is not cool by that, and they would have been long-time opponents to vouchers. They have more recently begun to understand the nuances of charter schools. Mm. I've had plenty of conversations at NetRoots Nation about charter schools, and we will get to that. But I want to call attention to one aspect of vouchers we should address, because Georgia has what it calls a tax credit scholarship program that people defend by saying it's different from vouchers. It's vouchers by another name, said Betty Pringle. There are many names, euphemisms for vouchers. Proponents of vouchers have learned over the years to use different names, but once you expose that, then they move on to different names. They're very good at evolving their message, but you're talking about taxpayer money being used to fund private schools, and that flies in the face of what public education is supposed to be. Uh, This is Jean Neely speaking. When we start talking about a resource amount of money that's given to private schools by Gonski, that's vouchers in my book. Indeed. Yes, Robert. Getting back to the interview, um, uh, Jeff Bryant said, so about charters, Stacey Evans was one of the 11 Democrats to vote in favour of, of Amendment 1 that would have established the Opportunity School District that would have facilitated state empowerment convers- conversion of public schools to charter school management. The amendment was eventually defeated in, in a November referendum. Um, is Evans out of step with most Democrats on that? 
Uh, Betty Pringle answered, the NEA worked really hard with our Georgia affiliate to expose what the OSD is designed to do, and we were successful. That's the Opportunity School District. We mobilised against a lot of big money to send a very simple message that we need to support our public schools and make sure that every public school is as good as our best public school. So why haven't Democrats always been behind that simple message? People say we can't do it. It's too much money. We can't make education equitable for all kids. So instead, we get into these false conversations about other initiatives. We too often adopt the false language of failing schools, when we should instead be talking about how we, as a society, have failed our students. Yes. Well, in response to that, um, I would ask, along with that false conversation about failing public schools, another conversation I often hear about Democrats is that we need to charter schools because they offer some black families the only way to escape failed schools. And how would you address that question? It is a challenge for our progressive allies who don't see the long-term impact of this narrative about the need to rescue black families one at a time from their inequitably resourced schools. But if that story really is true, which we could argue, then what it's saying is that we're going to support and continue to build a system that is still inequitable a system in which we're going to decide what some students will get and others won't. Also, if the story really were true, in what scenario are the students who get left behind getting what they need? Even if we agree that charter schools are the best option for black families, and we have data that say that that's not always true, we know that having these charters puts into place a process where there are winners and losers. Well, I get what you're saying, that the process of school choice doesn't take into account the welfare of all black families, but isn't it right to save, well, some of them? Approaching the problem of inequity by creating options for just some families is exactly the wrong way because you're accepting the premise that we can't educate all children. So, does that mean the NEA is anti-charter? Well, we're not opposed to charter schools. We have started charter schools and we have members in charter schools, but charters need to have specific criteria. They need to be accountable, controlled by democratically elected boards and have transparency. And an important condition overlooked, they need to be part of the system, part of the public system, that is. They should be public schools, not separate. They should be part of a system of education that makes sure that every student gets what they need to thrive. And we actually do have examples of that. Is it, um, is it what you mean by nuance of charter schools that progressives are finally coming around to? Progressives at their core share a lot of the same values, but we need to dig down into what it is that progressives think charter schools are doing, even for that black family who declares charter schools are working for them. 
Progressives need to understand that expanding charters is fraught with all kinds of unintended consequences that even those behind the expansions, for the right reasons, often don't see. What we're seeing is that even in communities where some families have benefited from charters, like, say, New Orleans, charter schools are breaking the community apart. And when that happens, the community is not fighting together for its collective good. This diminishes the power of a collective community's ability to demand what it needs for children. So... At Netroots, we've heard a lot about drawing lines in sand, uh, where if Democrats cross, they're no longer a progressive. For instance, any candidate who comes here and is not pro-choice on women's reproductive rights is going to have a hard time. We seem to have a line drawn in the sand on school vouchers. But how do you tell what progressives are closer to drawing a line in the sand in all forms of public school privatisation, including charters? Well, we're getting closer It's happening. What happened with the NAACP is instructive. It was not easy because Democrats are not yet united around the issue of privatisation. And there are many parents in communities of colour who still see charters as a way to save children. But when the NAACP held hearings around the country, I went to the one in New York... I heard the stories, for instance, of parents of special needs students who had been thrown out of charter schools and sent back to public schools whose resources had been decimated due to the money flowing to the charters. What I saw was a rising grassroots understanding among parents that charters are not passing the smell test and we have to fight for something better for our children. So I think we're on the verge of a widespread consensus that the current approach to charters is not working. So uh, what should progressives uh, be for instead? Progressives all share a core value that all students need to be successful, and when they aren't, we need to provide more opportunities. What progressives have lost sight of is the other core value of the collective good. Progressives are going to have to wrestle with that, and I see signs that they are. So that is our press release, uh, 719, in which you can see that in America it's a slightly different situation, but they are still worried by even the first signs of privatisation. Charter schools are a bit like the independent public schools that uh, Mr Pine was trying to impose on the public systems of Australia when he was the Minister for Education in Canberra. And in America, there has been a long tradition of resisting money for private religious schools, but the vouchers and the charter schools are in fact the uh, elephant in the room, if you like, over in America for widespread privatisation and there's a lot of money in it. There are a lot of people uh, throughout the world, the hedge funds and others, who want to make money out of insecure parents who are prepared to pay fees and send their children to privatise schools in the United States and they're trying to privatise the uh, public schools of the United States uh, in this very underhand way. 
So we hope that you found that interesting and we also thank uh, John Foster again for sending to us. Yes, you're listening to the DOGS program, the Defence of Government Schools, D-O-G-S, that's what we do. Um, We'll be returning with more uh, views and reviews of what's going on in the education debate in Australia and around the world after a little bit of music.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Um, and of course at 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au, I think it is. Um, yeah, look, uh, that was a bit of Verdi, just for fun. We don't often play Verdi here on the Dogs Program, but why not? That was from Nambuco. Um, Via Pensario Suolae Delote, I think is how you say it, but my Italian is not brilliant, so we'll hopefully um, won't get too many calls from Italian people um, saying my pronunciation is completely rubbish. But that was Verdi, and that was from his opera Delote. It's an opera chorus, actually. And before we continue, I'd just like to put a quick cheerio out there to Jason from Moralbark. Thanks very much for calling in and supporting the Dogs Program. It's good to know people are out there listening, and new listeners are always welcome, of course. Because what we have to say is important in the educational landscape of Australia. Um, I don't say it. Um, a lot of other people do too. Um, look, there's a, it's difficult. It's difficult to talk about it sometimes because you get a bit depressed. Um, some news came in, actually, some sort of unrelated, not ed- educational news, um, that in China in the last 15 years, um, you, know, you know, communist China, you know, that's socialism, you know, socialism. Communism doesn't work. It's all failed, blah, blah, blah. In China... Um, in the last 15 years, they've raised 300 million people out of poverty. Um, they did that using various, of course, economic reforms, and I'm not going to comment on the way the environment is in, on, in mainland China. It's probably a mess. But one of their policies, one of their structures and policies in mainland China is, of course, to support education. There is not enough money to spend on education in China, so they just make some more to do it because they consider education in, in mainland communist China to be of primary importance, and so they fund it. For the national good, if not for the common good. Yeah, and, and, and for the future. I mean, if you want to have a, you know, if you can raise 300 million people out of poverty in 15 years, which is in fact, um, on a world scale and through history, probably one of the most extraordinary feats for good um, that's ever taken place in the history of humanity. Um, that's what they've done. And they've done it primarily um, through educating the people of China in, 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 in as best the way they can, you know, from being below the poverty line to being above it. In Australia, here in Australia, the lucky country, the stupid country, whatever one you call it, but here in Australia, um, we have education debates. We have education debates about tertiary education, you know, the cutting edge, you know, where people actually innovate, where people actually learn how to think um, for the benefit of the nation. Tertiary education in Australia it just has to fight and scrabble and scrape. And when it comes to teachers, you know, how, do, how do we produce teachers? Well, we have things like Teach for Australia. I'll deal with both of these issues in part, but it just I find it quite depressing. It doesn't make you want to give up because you know, hope is longer and you have to keep the struggle up here at the Dogs Program because government education, state education, has to be defended in Australia. But the Education Minister Simon Birmingham, um, in an article reflected by reflecting um, the thoughts of Bernard Keane um, as part of the Crikey website, he said Simon Birmingham gave a speech in effect telling the higher education sector that he's the terminator. Um, he's just going to keep coming to universities in an effort to cut their funding. and Nothing's going to stop him. In a speech that, as a fashion of a time, was liberally distributed to journalists the day before he delivered it, Birmingham told the universities they are kidding themselves if they think the pressure to cut their funding is going to relent. The Senate of Australia, in, in Canberra, of course, has different views and has already twice rebuffed the efforts by the Abbott government to slash university funding and force students to pay much higher costs for their degrees. But Monash Vice-Chancellor Margaret Gardner, on the other hand, complains that the government has no vision 
of actually what role universities are supposed to play in the broader economy, except as a source of savings. Birmingham promptly confirmed this by declaring in, in, in his speech that the need for budget savings should be self-evident. The Commonwealth Government remains in deficit and has been for nine years. So some in Birmingham views the funding of higher education in Australia as a question of budget deficit, just as a, primarily as a question of budget deficit. That's sad. I'm sorry, I mean, I find that quite depressing. I mean, if that's what the Federal Education Minister views the universities of Australia as, as a, a bottom-line budget debt item, then, um, yeah, it's just a bit crazy. So he actually sees this whole thing as the need for savings as being self-evident. And the government isn't, isn't wasting $600 billion on company tax cuts by its own reckoning and will be able to afford negligible economic benefits even in the long run. Um, so, yeah, spending money on universities um, is a waste of money. Giving tax cuts to corporations is, is of net benefit. I'm, I just can't work it out. I really can't work it out. It goes back to the 19th century Tasmania where the landed aristocracy, self-style down there, refused to tax themselves for uh, the children of Tasmania. So the children of Tasmania were way behind the rest of Australia in 1900. A large number of them uh, couldn't even read or write. They weren't necessarily getting much of an education at all. Uh, if you're going to have an education system for the common good for every child, then the wealthy have got to uh, be taxed. Somebody's got to pay the taxes. And um, if they've made their wealth from the country, then why should they not be prepared to pay their tax for the common good? Mm. That's part of being in a democratic society. But, of course, they see themselves as some kind of aristocrats, I suppose. Well, actually, I mean, I started off this little little discussion by talking about China and how, in fact, there has been an extraordinary thing happen over there in the last 15 years. As I say, independent of the environment, independent of politics, independent of anything else, there have been 300 million people, 300 million people. That's, um, that's a lot of Australia's have been lifted from below the poverty line to above it using it, you know, by the means of many things, but primarily through education. And here in Australia... We don't merely see higher education as a piggy bank to be raided. We actually also see it as an income earner in the export sector. Now, of course, this means that the higher... For China, by the way. Indeed, indeed. The sector's reliance is funded currently at the moment, not by the government, by the income from foreign students, Mm. which has led to a fall in academic standards and a resigned tolerance to the rising level of plagiarism and undecidedly unrigorous pandering to the reactionary nationalism of Chinese students. And the demands of the Chinese government is of secondary importance in the flow of revenue from foreign students. So China is sending many of its best and its brightest here to Australia. They're paying. They're paying for it. They'll pay the money. The Chinese government will pay the money to send the kids to, to Australia. But in Australia, are we suffering? Well, you talk to anyone who works in the tertiary sectors about plagiarism. You talk to anyone who works as a lecturer or a tutor in the tertiary sector about the marking processes you go through when a student, mm-hmm. whose first language isn't English, um, is demanding to be passed for um, some work which can be considered um, unintelligible. Um, and I'm actually saying some quite controversial things here on the radio, and perhaps perhaps Tracy I should be a bit nervous, but the tertiary education sector in Australia is actually in a mess when it comes to its relationship with foreign students and foreign income. Mm. An absolute mess. Well, it's worse when you actually get into the private TAFEs, of course. 
I thought you say um, well. You see, the B exactly area. right. The B side for all this is the disaster of vocational education. Much, but not all, the responsibility rests not with the Liberal government that we currently have in Birmingham, but with the Labor government yeah. that came previously. Contestably, the contestability of vocational education and training was always going to be a recipe for shonky and outright fraud. And the persistent lesson for the corporatisation, the privatisation, the outsourcing over thirty years of, of tertiary education in Australia is that whatever benefits may flow to the Treasury through asset sales or reduced spending, in the private sector gouge is going to gouge and rot, is going to rot, and eventually requiring mass re-regulation, which is again going to cost a lot more money. And it's fallen to some in Birmingham to clean up the costly mess of labour previously. Because we can see right now, as we've mentioned many times, and it's now just self-evident, we were, ahead, we were on, on this 10 years ago, now it's just the truth, that the privatisation of vocational education in Australia is a complete disaster and it requires renationalising. This is pretty much agreed by all political parties at the moment, and guess what? That's going to cost a lot of money. Now, separate to that, let's get down to team tax into teachers. The same processes, and this I have to actually blame the, the, the Liberal politicians for, have led to the idea of we need more teachers. Oh, well, let's just get some. Let's just get some. Let's get the best and brightest of, of, of the state of Victoria. Let's get the best and brightest of Australia and put them in the most difficult schools and that will solve the problem. We'll pay them money. We won't trade them, but they are the best and brightest so they will cope. Now, this whole process is a thing called Teach for Australia. It was modelled on a program in America called Teach for America and basically you get the best and brightest graduates from university and you put them into schools. You don't train them. You put them into schools after six weeks and then you mentor them through, and because they're the best and the brightest, they will be good for the kids. They did this in America. It's a classic sort of you know, free enterprise and capitalism comes to the rescue sort of idea, where you know, everyone will compete for this. Oh, by the way, you throw a fair bit of money at it. $34 million was spent by the federal government on the first five cohorts out of Teach for Australia. So a fair bit of money. So what do you get bang for your buck with capitalism doing all the wonderful things? Well... Federal Education Department set up this thing called Teach for Australia. I'll just, just quickly run through what it is. Basically, Teach for Australia, you get someone, you give them six weeks, sometimes 12 weeks training, um, and you put them in front of a class in one of the most difficult schools in Australia, and because they are the best and the brightest, they will survive. Now, of course, the education unions think this is... Well, basically, it devalues the art of teaching. I'll take that back. It devalues the craft of teaching. I won't call it an art. I'm not sure that they do survive, do they? I well, think it's a bit more complicated. Well, than let's being well let's, well let's have a look at let's have a look at the numbers. It's been five years now, so five co- five cohorts have gone through. How many graduates of the five cohorts? And by the way, that's thousands of students that have gone through this process. Thirty four point six five million dollars have been spent on them. There are one hundred and twenty four graduates still teaching. So, and only 37 of those, 124, only 37 are still teaching in the original school to which they were placed. So, $34 million, 37 teachers. Is that value for money? No, it's not. So, this is supposed, this was the free market trying to solve the problem of disadvantage and inequity in Australia by putting brilliant teachers in front of kids that needed them. And there's 37 left after 30. That's almost a million dollars each. Million dollars each teacher. Um, the Australian Education Union, of course, have an opinion about this. They say the disadvantaged schools 
need increased resources to close the gap, not expensive and ineffective programs like Teach for Australia. Now, obviously it's not working. Like, it's just not working. For those people who watch shows like Utopia, you can see this being a political solution. You know, money is thrown at something. There's lots of photo opportunities with the best and the brightest and, and lots of poor children being happy because all these smart people have turned up. But when all the cameras go away and all the politicians disappear, you're left with almost, almost nothing. Well, 37 teachers isn't nothing, but they're 30, 37 very expensive teachers. But, um, yeah, uh, Birmingham, what's, what's he going to do about it? Because this is a problem. He's, he's going he's to keep it up. He says, no, this is good. He's going to put in another $20 million um, for, uh, in, in the forward estimates just to keep it all going. Now, what does this mean in percentage term? Actually, only around 10% of the overall teachers, only around 10% of all the teachers that were trained survive three years. Survive three years. So 90% after three years aren't teaching anymore at all. So all the training, all the effort and all the money has just been, well, there's, there's a phrase we use in Australia, something about walls and up against. Um, all the money's gone. And that's the capitalist solution. <laughs> I, mean, I hate to say it, but that's the neoliberal capitalist solution where uh, you throw money at the best and brightest and solve problems in a, in a, in a sexy way and then walk away. It, to me, it all falls within the idea that education is a charitable act. We often talk about this, but in Australia there is a very, very strong idea that education is a charitable act. We're treating, we're treating our Australian children as if, in fact, they were children in refugee camps in Africa. Yeah. So going to university, for the government to pay for that, is a charitable act. And governments don't do charity. Charities do charity. <laughs> um, do they? Yeah. So this whole idea that education is this thing that, you know, it's a charitable act and so therefore it's really not the government's responsibility. We'll give money to religious organisations or charitable organisations and they'll do the education for us. Oh, so there's actually money in charity, taxpayers' money in charity, Robert. Well, yes, of course there is, Jean, and we'll probably talk about that in shows to come. Um, but, <laughs> yes, if you're listening to this program out there in Radio Land or the WWWs, uh, please do not walk away with the idea that education is a charitable act. Education is a necessary good for a society. Education is fundamental in the 21st century to the success of a group of people surviving on the planet. In enlightenment terms, it is also the right of every child. The child of every citizen of a state has a right to the very best education that that state can provide. A well-educated country, a country of well-educated people who have taken up their birthright of education from being born in that country, don't sit around dealing with concepts like fake news <laughs> because an educated country will be able to discriminate just as a matter of course. So debates can be had, arguments can be had. As soon as someone starts indulging in things like screaming out fake news or polemics or ad hominem, uh, the population will go, well, I'm not listening to you because um, your, 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 your arguments are failed and flawed. And so therefore they gain no traction. You don't get a Trump in a well-educated country and you don't get a Tony Abbott in a well-educated country either. Um, you also don't get other sort of, um, other, other sort of perhaps potentially left-wing or communist. or you, you don't get that. <laughs> you tend to not have extremes in well-educated countries. How do I know this? this? These are lessons of history. Obviously revolutions and violence have happened in the, up, up until a certain time. But once you start getting universal education... Um, Countries, not 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 the not the planet, but various countries that are well educated, start to say, well, actually, 
let's raise our taxes collectively for the benefit of all because that's the way you cut the crime rate. Various countries have done this, certainly in Scandinavia. They said, oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll have a high taxing economy. We'll pay our taxes. Why? Well, because we don't want other people to be poor in this country because that other person might be me. Education and empathy are all you require. And in Australia, education is something we're failing in quite dramatically um, on, on those quite depressing ways. I think we'll have a bit more music and perhaps discuss something else um, after this break.
Now that was Verdi again from Nabucco, and here's my Italian. I think it's worse than Robert's. Uh, Gli aridi festivi. But um, we thought you'd like a little bit of uh, opera this week. Now I want to talk about, about a very interesting article that I've received from John Hinkson from Arena. It's entitled Trump and the Fascist Prospect and it will be, if it has not already, been uh, produced in Arena Journal 4748 of 2017 uh, from page 30, 33 on. And it's a very interesting article. His first, The first part of this article deals with what happened earlier in the 20th century with the uh, fascists. I think we all know who fascists are, particularly around 3CR. Uh, Hitler was a famous fascist, as was Franco in Spain. And uh, what happened in the 20th century was that the 19th century organisations which had come out of the Enlightenment and public education was one of them, were taken over, co-opted or done in by the fascist regimes. So what is fascism? It was a movement or many movements with a common core which emerged in the early decades of the 20th century and it sought to create a third way between the social choices of the day. What were the social choices of the day? They were the Marxist socialist movements and the liberal democracies in those days. Marxism was in core respects an Enlightenment movement. Uh, Marx was certainly started off um, in, with the Enlightenment, but it was um, fascism, along with other more conventional right-wing movements and organisations, consistently tried to go back into the 18th century and even the Middle Ages to bypass the Enlightenment traditions and the organisations which were established during the Enlightenment after the French Revolution. Now, this included the political institutions of liberal democracy and also the radical individualism that it typically advocated. Fascism was disaffected with the general themes of modernity, change, growth and progress. And uh, the papacy, for example was part of it, particularly in the 19th century when they reacted against liberalism and progress. There were many anti-enlightenment movements throughout the 19th century, but what made a significant difference in the 1920s was the actual crisis of liberal democracy, especially in Europe and even more intensely in Weimar Germany. In other words, liberal democracy was unable to respond to the multiple social and economic crises that threatened to engulf it in that period. But the fascists cunningly pursued their objectives while also using existing state structures to seize power. They allowed those institutions to feel secure and to feel that they had a value place within a viable fascist general order and then they took them over. And you can have massive expansion of the armed forces too was one of the elements of their strategy. And in this regard, there's considerable resonance with the present power struggle in Washington, 
although it must be granted that Trump, for the moment, is mostly stirring institutional resistance. Now, the question is whether Trump is going to achieve neutralisation at all of the institutions, but it is plausible that it should not be taken for granted that the institutions in America that are fighting Trump will win out. And one of those institutions, of course, and this is where we become very interested, is public education and what DeVos and others, even within the Democrats uh, themselves in Washington, are doing to public education. So I really do recommend this article and how uh, Hinkson brings fascist movements up to date in our own time and what is actually happening in our liberal democracies in Australia and in Europe too, where there has been a breakdown, a very fundamental breakdown in the common good and social cohesion and getting social cohesion, of course, and the belief even that people do have opportunities and have a place in our civil society uh, is very important for people to have a good public education system. So I recommend this article and um, I will probably put it up on our website for everybody to read in our next news release. But um, if you want the original, you would go to the Arena Journal uh, 4748 of 2017. Uh, Arena also has a magazine that has lots of very interesting and thoughtful articles. And we're very fortunate in Melbourne to have a journal and a magazine of these calibre. But I'll now hand over to Robert, who's got some really interesting material on Scotch College. Remember last week we had a lot to do with Scotch College and its capital uh, projects, but Robert has some more information that the people in Canberra, the Save Our Schools people, have unearthed. Over to Robert. Indeed. Thank you very much, Jean. We'll be dealing with that after just some short, a little short break from some more opera choruses.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial and podcast on the WWWs. Gene was having a nice chat about fascism, so I thought we'd play some music that fascists like. That was Richard Wagner, Steuermann Lasch die Wacht. Um, yeah, so just for fun. Um, it's also it's also a bit of fun music. Yeah, much admired by admired by Hitler was uh, was Wagner. Yes, yeah. Although Wagner himself, I'm pretty sure, wasn't a fascist. But um, oh, he didn't like Mahler. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't I don't like Mahler either. So we've got that in common. Oops, I could be a fascist too. Anyway, we won't we won't go into that. Let's let's talk about Scotch College. Um, who who educate the elites of Australia, fascist or otherwise? Uh, the elites of Australia. Uh, uh, well, they're, they're educated at Scotch College for a couple of reasons. Oh, don't for just a moment remember that they uh, do want to promote the egalitarian tradition of their Scottish forebears. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's on their mission statement on their website. I remember that. Um, well, uh, Trevor Cobalt and I have both done a little bit more extra digging on Scotch College and find out what this school is all about. Pulls in about six point two million dollars in federal and state funding per year, and they don't need it. They uh, the, the college itself, the main campus, is on twenty seven hectares, on the banks of the Yarra River. Its sporting facilities include seven sporting fields, an all weather indoor hockey field, twenty six synthetic tennis courts, a junior school gymnasium. <laughs> as well as an indoor sports centre featuring a heated swimming pool and a diving pool, in case you want to go diving, basketball courts, a fully equipped gymnasium, three squash courts and a weight training complex. has rowing facilities on the banks of the Yarra River within the school grounds and a modern boat shed housing an array of rowing and motorboats, as well as weight training facilities. It also owns 80 hectares of forest in a lodge near Healesville um, and a beachfront residence down in Cowes on Phillip Island so the kids can go on school camps and never have to leave the school. What this school doesn't have, schools don't want. They are arguably one of the richest schools in Australia. We know this because their ICSIA value, that is the indication of socioeconomic status, is one of the two or three highest in the country. Um, if you want to educate a child there in VCE, you as a parent have to cop up $30,000 a year. If you want to educate a child there and it's not at VCE, you have to cough up an average of $27,000 per year per child. So, yeah, uh, the wealthy go there and they are funded by the government. Trevor Carwell thinks they shouldn't be. I don't think they should be funded by the government. If parents want to spend that money and send their kids there, go for their lives. Nothing to do with me. Um, if you want to take yourself out of the system and exclude the vast majority of the population who can't afford to go there, then that's fine. You just have your enclave. Uh, you do your business. I'm not paying for it. Trevor Cobalt thinks so too. It's just that simple. Nothing more or less more complicated. But I'd like to finish the dog program on another thought. I'm going to quote some words here from a bloke called uh, Peter Fitzsimons. Um, He's an author, um, and a lot of what he says I don't necessarily agree with. He's a Tasmanian as well. Um, Interesting fellow. Talks a lot about football. But he's a good Catholic boy, uh, which is good, but... um, for him, or I don't know, it's neither good nor bad, he just is. That's the way he's been brought up. But um, he has had a few things to say about what's going on today in both the marriage equality debate and in terms of Catholic schools and in terms of Catholic morality. Now, Peter Fitzsimons says, and I think this is all rather interesting, he says, so, I got this right, yes? On the one hand, we have the Catholic Church maintaining... It will make no change in its protocol about the sanctity of the confessional. 
Now, what this basically means is that for those people who don't know the Catholic Church is, as Jean would say, imperium imperio. It's a state within its state. Um, it is run along the lines of canon law, not common law, but canon law. They have their own special law. It's not Sharia law. It's canon law. It's the laws of the Catholic Church. They actually have a country. I think it's called Vatican City. It's a country. Um, so they can call it a state if they like. But it's just a system whereby if someone goes into the confessional um, and they confess their sins to God um, via a minister, or sorry, via a priest, I think that's what they're called in confessional, via a priest, um, then the priest does not have to say what has been said, especially and in particular if it includes criminal acts like murder or rape. So the Catholic Church says in the confessional we have this sanctity. If someone confesses rape or murder, uh, the priest does not have to tell anyone about it. And the Catholic Church maintains that despite the fact, as has been actually currently revealed by the Criminal Justice Report of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Childhood Sexual Abuse, um, Peter Fitzsimons actually highlights one particular case. And it happened in Rock, Rockhampton, where a man called Father Michael McArdle was forgiven in the confessional for raping children no fewer than 1,500 times by 30 separate priests. Father McArdle said every time he raped someone, he was devastated himself personally after every single one. Father McArdle affirmed in a 2004 affidavit, quoted by none other than the Australian newspaper on Tuesday, August 26th. He said, I was so distressed about raping the children, I would, I would become so distressed that I would attend confessions weekly. Every week I go to a confessions. And after every confession, said Father McArdle, it was like a magic wand had been waved over me. Now... You go and do it again. Not a, you did, yes, fifteen hundred times. Now, not a single one of those priests called the police because of the sanctity of the confessional and all that. Macardo continued raping children for decades, devastating the lives of, lives of children again and again and again. Now, Peter Fitzsimons actually put, makes this point. He says, on the other hand, at the same time. We have the Catholic Church waving a flag upon what it sees as the moral high ground, warning the rest of us of what will happen to society if we, as a country, vote yes for marriage equality. And its warnings, the warnings of the Catholic Church, include the dangers to children. Peter Fitzsimons concludes by saying, I ask this seriously. How long can we, as a society, bear this? And I think this is one of the things that... I'm going to bring this up on the DOGS program, and I have brought it up on the DOGS program for the very simple reason, is that these people we're talking about are funded by the taxpayers to educate the children of Australia. The entire Catholic school system in Australia is funded from two sources. Billions. Billions of dollars from two sources, neither of which are the Catholic Church. (laughs) Catholic Church doesn't pay for Catholic schools. Catholic churches who paid around about 5% of the costs are borne by the parents. And about 95% of the costs are borne by me and you and everyone, the taxpayers. 
And that's the only reason I bring that up, because I think it's worth pointing out at this particular juncture, with all these ideas flowing around, that it's good and useful that there is the chance that we as Australians, an educated society, have the ability to see through these these, these contradictory propositions. But we've come to the end of the Dogs program, I'm afraid, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's been great having your company. Um, but we will be back again, of course, next Saturday. But until then, it's bye for now. Joe, you're ten years dead. 